Welcome to True Paranormal, the podcast with your host, Leo Rizzuti. Every week we will explore such topics as ghosts, demons, poltergeist, haunted history, time shifts, cryptozoology, and other aspects of the paranormal through listener-submitted accounts, documentary studies, and interviews with the investigators that dedicate their lives to searching for proof of the unknown. So get a fresh cup of coffee, dim the lights, relax, and get ready for a short visit to the realm of the true paranormal. Hey guys, Leo Rizzuti here. Welcome to another episode of True Paranormal, the podcast. It's been kind of a topsy-turvy week this week, weather-wise, with my buddies down in the southeast getting anywhere from, looks like, 9 to 11 inches of snow, while all we got up here in the Great White North was a light dusting. But don't worry, we'll catch up with you guys before the season's out. It's only December. In the meantime, hope that you guys down there are all safe and warm, and that you've all raided the grocery store for your bread and milk and toilet paper. You know, now that I think about it, why those three items? I mean, toilet paper I sort of understand, but why bread and milk? As long as I lived in the South, and believe me, I grew up and spent most of my life in North Carolina and South Carolina, I never once got iced in and thought, gee, you know what would make this bearable? A few slices of white bread soaked in some cow titty juice. Not once. So why bread and milk? Why not say, I don't know, bourbon and chocolate chip cookies? Seriously, what winter situation is not made better by including hard liquor and sweets? Except for maybe that one movie where Jack Nicholson got all drunk and crazy in a snowed-in hotel with his wife and kid. Don't do that one. (laughs) At any rate, guys, hope that you guys are all doing great. And since you have nowhere to go until the spring thaw, what do you say we jump right into our episode? This week, we're going to be continuing our educational series, this time looking at what are poltergeists and demons, what causes them, and how we handle them from the perspective of investigating them as well as living in those conditions. We'll also be looking at a couple of case studies in each of these subjects to try to give some real-world perspective to them. So go ahead and grab your cup of coffee and your favorite chair, or bread and milk if you got them available, and let's settle in for this week's episode of True Paranormal, the podcast. What comes to mind when I say the word poltergeist? To many people, the word conjures up images of one of the scariest movies of all time. I'm talking about, of course, Poltergeist. I'm not talking about that joke of a remake that they did a few years ago. I'm talking about the 1982 classic starring the incomparable Craig T. Nelson, Joe Beth Williams, and Heather O'Rourke. And, oh, a couple of dozen actual human skeletons in a pool just for effect. If you heard Poltergeist and immediately thought, oh, Sam Rockwell, you are just wrong. Simply, laughingly wrong. And you should be ashamed of yourself. The thing is, the action in that movie has almost no relationship to what an actual poltergeist is. A poltergeist, which is of course a German word meaning noisy ghost, is a phenomenon where activity is marked mainly by noises and objects being moved or thrown, although other events have been documented. These occurrences, surprisingly, have nothing to do with hauntings. They are actually seemingly caused by mental activity coming from one of the residents in the location, oftentimes subconsciously. This type of phenomenon has been extensively studied, and in fact is now classified as Recurrent Spontaneous Psychokinesis, or RSPK, in order to separate them from haunting activity. 
I tend to still prefer the term poltergeist, mainly because I've spent my life calling it that, but also because I tend to think that anytime you can slip a German word into polite conversation, you should, just so long as you don't follow it up with genocide or maybe trying to invade Russia in the winter. The theory is, and this is pretty much what I ascribe to, that people who are prone to manifestations of psychic ability, especially psychokinesis, which, by the way, is the ability to move or affect things using mental energies, have an ability to subconsciously affect the world around them when placed under high amounts of stress. This is seen almost exclusively with young adolescents, especially teenage girls. The thought is that at this age, the pituitary gland becomes particularly active during that time, and that organ has often been associated with increased psychic ability, at least as much as it has been able to be measured and quantified. Why this has been seen more often in females is kind of a mystery, but increased hormone levels could also play a part. The poltergeist activity often begins suddenly with no observable reason for its onset. It continues from anywhere from a few weeks to up to several months. Activity has ranged from simple knocks and raps to things like objects moving, being thrown, or maybe even disappearing to even electronic phenomena such as telephone ringing or devices being turned on or off without having a power source. Let's look at one of the most famous poltergeist cases. This is known as the Saki Poltergeist of 1960 and 61, as documented by Mr. James Dean. No one really understood how upset Virginia really was when she moved to Scotland in October 1960. Virginia was the youngest child and the only one left at home now that everyone else had left home to work and raise their own families. Because her parents were almost 60 and because her brothers and sisters had gone, Virginia's childhood had been lonely, especially in the rural county where they lived. As someone who knew the Campbells said, they gave the impression of people who had lived for a long time in a remote and isolated place. In fact, her loneliness would only be accentuated by the move to Scotland, because a number of things about the move disturbed Virginia's peace of mind. First, she was upset enough that her father had to stay behind to sell their farm in Ireland. Second, she wasn't really happy that she and her mother had to live with her aunt and uncle in Saki. They had a small house, and she had to share a bed with her younger cousin, Margaret. To make matters worse, her mother found work in another town that was not commuting distance from Saki. So, Mrs. Campbell decided to live in the town where she worked and left Virginia in Saki. Perhaps worst of all, Virginia had to leave behind her only friend, Annie, and her beloved dog, Toby. So Virginia, who was already a shy girl anyway, was left to stay alone with her uncle's family, share a bed with Margaret, and start school in a new town. Obviously, she felt very lonely and upset indeed. The first sign of any poltergeist activity happened on Tuesday, November 2nd, 1960, just after Virginia and Margaret had gone to bed. Virginia's aunt and uncle, who were sitting downstairs in the living room, heard the girls call out that they heard a noise in their room. Go to sleep, girls, Mr. Campbell called. It's just your imagination. A few minutes passed, and then the girls rushed downstairs. As they did, a thunking sound much like a bouncing rubber ball, seemed to follow them down the stairs into the living room. The noise stopped, and everyone looked puzzled. The Campbells thought that the girls might have been playing a trick on them and ordered them back to bed. But when they looked in on the girls a few moments later, they could hear the knocking, which seemed to come from behind the girls' headboard. They asked the girls to switch to another bedroom, thinking that the knocking disturbed them from sleeping. But when the girls were tucked into another bed in another room, 
the knocking began again, just behind the headboard of the new bed. Virginia's aunt and uncle weren't sure what to do, when suddenly the knocking ceased, right around the time that Virginia fell asleep. The next night, the strange knocking was heard again, shortly after Virginia and Margaret had gone to bed. Even after Margaret ran terrified from the bedroom, the knocking continued. At first, her aunt and uncle suspected that Virginia was making the knocking sounds herself as a cruel joke. Perhaps, they thought, it was her attempt to have the bed all to herself. But when the knocks continued, they became just as terrified as Margaret. They called a local minister, Mr. Lund, who arrived at their house shortly after midnight. He heard the loud knocking sounds as well and noted that it came from behind the headboard. He thought Virginia might be to blame also, but when he asked Virginia to move down into the bed so that her head was not touching the headboard, the knocking continued. This convinced him that Virginia could not have been producing the knocking sounds herself. What's more, the headboard did not touch the wall in any way, so that the knocking was not coming from the wall, it came from the headboard itself. Mr. Lund placed his hand on the headboard and the wall. When he heard the knocking, only the headboard vibrated in unison with the sound. The knocking continued despite Mr. Lund's presence. Then, as Mr. Lund watched, a large, heavy linen chest that stood near Virginia's bed began to rock back and forth. It rose slightly off the floor before it moved towards the bed, jerking along and almost toppling a time or two. After it had moved about 18 inches, the chest stopped and then returned to its original position. By this point, Virginia was becoming hysterical, and Mr. Lund tried to calm her down by joking that her boyfriend must have been knocking to get her attention. Maybe you should knock back to him, Mr. Lund suggested. He talked a while to Virginia, who seemed to be somewhat more relaxed. Then he suggested that Margaret should get back into the bed with Virginia and that both girls should try to get some sleep. No sooner had he spoken than the knocking began again, very insistently, as if to say that Margaret wasn't wanted in Virginia's bed. When Margaret used another bed in the same room, the knocking stopped for the night, and both girls fell soundly asleep. Similar knockings occurred the next day, but other, even stranger things were beginning to happen. Some china vases had moved by themselves. An apple had floated out of the fruit bowl. A sewing machine had started by itself when no one was near. But these were minor incidents compared to what happened during the course of the next week, especially at school. On Friday, November 25th, Virginia went to school for the first time in three days. She had been kept from school when the knocking had happened because her aunt and uncle thought she was too upset to attend school. When she returned home that day, Mr. Lund, who had stopped by for a visit, asked Virginia how her day had been. All right, she said matter-of-factly, but something funny happened when I was there. When my teacher was standing near my desk, the lid of another desk went up all by itself. That was all Virginia said, but when A.R.G. Owen, a researcher who studied the Saki poltergeist, interviewed Miss Margaret Stewart, Virginia's teacher, he received slightly different and much more compelling information as to what had happened. For example, Miss Stewart noticed the lid of Virginia's desk raise up and down three times when Virginia's hands were squarely on top of the desk. In fact, from Mrs. Stewart's vantage point, Virginia appeared to struggle against the desktop as if to stop it from rising. Miss Stewart had the presence of mind to check if maybe Virginia were raising the desktop with her knees, but she wasn't. Then Miss Stewart stared at Virginia as if to say, that's enough. Virginia simply stared back silently. 
However, in talking to Mr. Lund, Virginia seemed to have forgotten something that happened about 15 minutes later. The girl who sat behind Virginia asked permission to return her library book and left her desk for a while. As Miss Stewart watched, much to her surprise, she saw the girl's empty desk rise slowly upwards until it was an inch or so off the floor. It stayed there for a moment, then gently lowered itself back down to the floor. Immediately, Miss Stewart rushed to the desk to make sure strings hadn't been used to raise the desk. She found a normal desk and no way to explain its movement. None of the other children had noticed the desk's movement and she felt more than a little embarrassed at her rush to an empty desk. In order to cover her actions, Miss Stewart turned to Virginia and asked, Are you feeling better, Virginia? There's nothing wrong with me, Miss Stewart, Virginia replied. Three days later on Monday, November 28th, Miss Stewart was again surprised when Virginia approached the teacher's desk that morning. At the same time, the blackboard pointer on the desk began to vibrate and move across the desk until it fell onto the floor. As the pointer moved, the teacher felt the desk and found it was vibrating as well. Then the desk began to move in a counterclockwise fashion, away from the teacher. She looked at Virginia, who was still standing a few feet away. At that point, Virginia started to cry. Please, miss, I'm not doing it, Virginia said. It's all right, just help me straighten up my desk. It was apparent from a number of other happenings that Virginia's distress was caused especially by the loss of her best friend and her dog. One day, the local doctor, Dr. Logan, stopped by to see how Virginia was doing and brought along his dog. Virginia was very taken with Dr. Logan's dog and remarked that he looked just like Toby. She played with the dog for a while and then Dr. Logan left with his pet. Later that night after she had gone to bed, Virginia went into a trance of sorts. She began to talk in her sleep, calling for her dog, Toby, and her friend, Annie. Mr. Lund, the minister, was visiting at the time of the trance and gave Virginia a teddy bear, thinking maybe this would calm her down. For a few minutes, she held the bear and cuddled it, perhaps thinking that it was her dog, until she felt a button on its front. This isn't Toby, she cried, and threw the teddy bear across the room. Then her eyes closed and Still in her trance, she flailed her arms and hit Mr. Lund and seemed to become hysterical. Mr. Lund and her aunt and uncle quickly left the room and soon her trance ended and she was quiet for the rest of the night. By December, the Saki poltergeist had become a common topic among the townspeople. It had been written about in the newspaper and had begun to achieve a sort of national reputation. On December 1st, Mr. Lund and three other ministers decided to perform a religious service of intercession in Virginia's bedroom to provide the family some sort of comfort. Mr. Lund had brought a tape recorder to make a record of the service which lasted 15 minutes. During the service, some knocking and scraping sounds were heard. Although the poltergeist activity did not go away, it was much less frequent after December 1st. By that time, Virginia was back to normal at school and had even made a friend, Elizabeth Brown. In fact, the poltergeist was so much less disturbing that Virginia gave it a name, Wee Huey. A few objects moved during the next few months, and soon both Margaret and Virginia began to blame a number of suspicious occurrences on Wee Huey, most notably the disappearance of a few bags of candy. Wee Huey obviously had a sweet tooth now that Virginia was feeling better. 
At any rate, Toby was eventually reunited with Virginia, and by March 1961, the poltergeist activity ceased completely. Clearly, as Virginia began to feel better about her new surroundings, Wee Huey was much less active. With the disappearance of the candy and a few other similar events, Virginia and Margaret may have decided to blame Wee Huey for a few of their own transgressions. A poltergeist may have come in handy, after all. So there you go, the Saki poltergeist. Uh, This case was notable for a multitude of reasons, the primary of which was that it was extensively studied and documented, as well as being witnessed by many people whose testimony was considered generally beyond reproach, including the local minister, the local doctor, and Virginia's schoolteacher. It was the case, as documented by researcher George Owen, that solidified in many people's mind that poltergeist activity is not related to ghostly activity, but to a specific person, in this case, 11-year-old Virginia. We see in this instance a huge variety of activity, including knocks, uh, levitation, vibrating furniture, objects moving and disappearing, things being damaged. Uh, She apparently had some pillowcases and sheets damaged that wasn't documented in the story, but in everything I've read that happened, and physical touching of witnesses, just to name a few. All in all, it stands as one of the most outstanding cases of poltergeist activity ever witnessed. Now let's have a look at what has become one of the most popular areas when haunting activity becomes the subject of conversation. Demons. First off, I would like to preface this by saying that I do not take this subject lightly. Demonic activity is a serious, deadly serious issue, as anyone who has been unfortunate enough to be oppressed by it can tell you. The fact that you can, for whatever reason, find on any message board dealing with the paranormal people asking how they can go about trying to become possessed on purpose, or how they can invite a demon into their life, either into their home or a relationship or whatever, is a disheartening one to me personally. I have helped more than a few people who have been under a state of oppression from a demonic entity, and I can tell you that not one single person that has come through it would ever wish it on anyone else. That being said, it's a subject that we do need to cover and that we need to educate ourselves on and help others educate themselves on. So let's jump right in, shall we? Classically speaking, a demon is an entity that is a purely negative spiritual being. Religiously speaking, demons are thought of as part of the fallen who followed Lucifer against God and were expelled from his kingdom for it. The most common thought is that they are therefore resigned to wander the earth, seeking to wreak their vengeance against God by oppressing his creation, man. They are able to take many forms that have been documented, including but not limited to dark masses, apparitions of family members, small children, human-animal hybrids, and even brilliant, white, angelic-looking beings. Demonic activity can stand alone on itself, but it's most often seen in conjunction with other haunting activity. Activity can run the entire gamut of haunting phenomenon, but almost always includes noises, apparitions, scratches, and objects moving. The most remarkable thing about demonic activity is the apparent obsession with the number three, supposedly as a mocking of the Holy Trinity. Knocks will be heard in groups of three, activity will often peak at 3 a.m., and scratches, uh, when they are apparent, will often appear in groups of three, and so on. Also, in the most oppressive of cases, 
animal noises, such as, and especially pigs, will be heard. Many times, activity will occur in such a way so that only one member of a family or a group will be subjected to it at a time, and so as maybe to create a sense of mistrust or disbelief amongst the other members. Demonic activity can often last for years and is notoriously difficult to end completely. Many times, even with changing locations or assistance from clergy, oppression continues unabated until tragedy occurs. Now let's take a look at one of my personal favorite cases in this area, and one that was investigated by none other than the incredible team of Ed and Lorraine Warren, the Smurl Haunting of West Pitson, Pennsylvania, from 1974 to 1989. For 13 years, on Chase Street in West Pittston, Pennsylvania, an ordinary family encountered something they couldn't explain and couldn't free themselves of. Their story became famous when the media became involved and their ordeal was told in a book and a movie, each titled The Haunted. It began when Jack and Janet Smurl moved from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania to escape the flooding damage left behind from Hurricane Agnes in 1972. In 73, they moved into a duplex Jack's parents had purchased, sharing the house with them. Jack and Janet and their two daughters, Dawn and Heather, lived in one half, and Jack's parents lived in the other. The house had been built in 1896 and was on a fairly quiet street in the middle of a middle-class, ordinary neighborhood. The living arrangement was a happy one. Jack and Janet had been raised in Catholic homes, and they and Jack's parents were strong in their religious faith. They were, and still are, a close, loving family who enjoyed sharing the house. They did some remodeling and redecorating work on the house, settled into it, and Jack and Janet added twin girls Shannon and Karen to the family. In January 1974, a year and a half after moving in, things began to change. It started out as minor but puzzling annoyances and incidents. A mysterious stain appeared on a new carpet in the house that apparently could not be removed. Deep scratches appeared on new bathroom fixtures in a remodeled bathroom. There were problems with leaking pipes in spite of repeated repairs to them. And a television set suddenly caught fire. Over time, the incidents became more alarming and frightening. Jack and Janet's daughter Dawn claimed she saw floating people in her bedroom drawers began to open and close by themselves. The sound of footsteps began on the stairs. Unplugged radios would suddenly begin blasting loudly, and the toilets would flush themselves. Whatever the cause, the incidents seemed to worsen. Horrible stenches would waft through the house, and Jack felt something physically touch him several times. The poltergeist, as they were thinking it was at the time, was appearing to be more and more demonic as time went by and by 1977, it was apparent that the Smurls were facing more than unexplained annoyances. The phenomenon wasn't confined to Jack and Janet's side of the duplex either. Jack's parents, John and Mary, were also subjected to frightening events. The house would become icy cold, and they would hear what appeared to be violent verbal fighting going on Jack and Janet's side of the home, with abusive, foul language, even when the couple wasn't home. Even neighbors were affected by the phenomenon plaguing the Smurl family. Screams and loud noises were heard coming from the house, even when no one was home. 
Not all of the neighbors were sympathetic, however. Some even claimed that the Smurls' story were false, accusing them of trying to make money through book and movie deals about their haunted house after the media became involved. However, inside the home, the activity intensified. Someone called Janet's name to her when she was in her basement tending to her laundry. She replied it first and then tried to find out who was calling her, in the end realizing she had been alone in the house the whole time. As if this were a catalyst, the force invading the small house grew bolder and stronger shortly afterwards. A black human-shaped form manifested in Janet's kitchen, moving through the wall and into John and Mary's side of the duplex, where Mary also witnessed the phenomena. Physical violence toward the family began and escalated. Even their pet German shepherd was tormented, picked up and thrown repeatedly. Shannon was thrown down a flight of stairs and a ceiling fan crashed down inches from her, barely missing hitting and injuring her. Janet was levitated and thrown, and there were continuous rapping and scratching noises heard within the walls. Ed and Lorraine Warren were contacted by Janet in 1986 for help. The Warrens were well-known psychical researchers and demonologists who have also investigated the Amityville house in Long Island. Janet had heard about them and in desperation asked them for help in spite of her skepticism. The Warrens interviewed the family and investigated the house. Their conclusion? Of the four entities in the home, one was demonic. Efforts to force the demon to expose itself failed, instead resulting in additional violence from the entity. The only thing that seemed to provide a cessation of the activity were holy water and prayer. The attacks upon the beleaguered family continued, growing worse in violence and intent. Jack and Janet suffered sexual attacks, and their daughter Dawn was nearly raped by the entity. Mysterious illnesses afflicted Karen Smurl and even Ed Warren. Janet and Mary Smurl suffered bites and slashes on their arms. When the Smurls' attempt to involve the Roman Catholic Church for help failed, the Warrens brought in a friend, Father McKenna, to perform an exorcism, but this only angered the demonic entity. McKenna performed a second exorcism, which also failed. Attempts to get away from the entity were also unsuccessful. The family was followed on a camping trip, and Jack was even tormented at work. In desperation, trying to force the Roman Catholic Church to get involved, the family decided to turn to the media for help. The resulting press coverage opened the floodgates and the Smurls' home became a tourist attraction, press magnet, and forums for skeptics. After repeated refusal by the church to become involved, the media coverage finally motivated the Scranton Diocese to offer an investigation into the Smurls' case. A third exorcism performed by Father McKenna brought an apparent end to the activity. In December 1986, however, after only three months of freedom from the torture, Jack saw the dark form beckoning to him. Once again, the phenomena began. The Smurls moved out of their house and into another town, and the book, The Haunted, was published shortly afterwards. In 1988, three years before a movie about the Smurls ordeal was released, the church performed a fourth and final exorcism, and at last the tortured family found a measure of peace and freedom from the darkness that had threatened and attacked them for so long. And there we have it, the Smurl haunting. This was one of the most difficult entities the Warrens ever helped to eradicate, according to them when speaking about it at a lecture they conducted that I happened to attend. 
In it, we see the typical situation of a combined haunting, along with demonic entity being the controlling aspect, using the other spirits as tools of oppression. The fact that the family was able to withstand such a long-term series of attacks is a testament to their personal strength and their faith, which is often missing in these types of cases that end more tragically. Now, I have personally been involved in a few cases of demonic oppression. In every situation, the fact that anyone, I mean anyone, can survive under the circumstances without losing their minds is a miracle in itself. If you ever find yourself in a situation that seems to fall into this category, please get help. What I have seen in the past are good people who think that, oh, they can handle it on their own, or maybe they're too embarrassed to ask for help. That never ends well. If you are an investigator who has come into contact with this type of activity, and believe me, if you investigate long enough, you will run up against it at some point. Understand the tools that you will need. Firstly, you need to protect yourself and your team, either through prayer beforehand and after, or through other spiritual supplication. These uh, entities draw their strength through negative emotions, including fear and anger, so kind of have to guard yourself against them. Um, if you feel yourself weakening or becoming perhaps nauseated, uh, remove yourself from the location until it passes. The good news is that these cases are usually extremely active, so evidence is readily available. Bad news is that recognition of the oppressing entity often strengthens it, so guard against it whenever possible. You don't want to try to talk to this thing. You don't want to try to uh, find out what is there. What it, you know, It's one of those things you don't want to try to antagonize. Again, know what you are going into and what your limitations might be, and maybe ask for help accordingly. Demonic activity is notoriously difficult to end, so you have to know that you're going to be in there for the long haul. The really good news is that there are plenty of people out there who have spent years focusing on only this subject, so there's no shortage of help available to those who need it, either as investigators or as inhabitants of the homes where activity is now present. In fact, the very podcast you're listening to right now is evidence of that. Well, guys, that's going to do it for this week's episode of True Paranormal, the podcast. I'd like to thank all of y'all for joining us this week and every week. Our audience just keeps growing and growing, and I really, really appreciate it. As always, remember to check us out on Facebook at True Paranormal, the podcast. Hit that like button, and then be sure to hit that email us button at the top of the page to share your story with us and be a part of our broadcast. Speaking of that, next week we will be getting back to sharing all of your stories that you have sent to us, so we have that going for us, which is nice. In the meantime, my name is Leo Rizzuti, and we look forward to seeing all you guys next week on another episode of True Paranormal, the podcast. <laughs>